Seth. Indeed, worthy is the Lamb. And we, it is He that we come to preach and we going to teach about and we begin to, we begin to worship as we look into the Word of God. Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine. We will finish it today and move into chapter ten through the four verses. Let's begin reading this morning, if you would. Turn to verse twenty-three. Or let's just start in 22. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in, in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works." They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. We looked last week at the few verses dealing with the patience and the power of God in verses 22 and 23 and 24. We talked about how God very patiently dealt with vessels that were already hardened in sin and that he had them prepared for destruction so that those vessels of mercy would see that and recognize that God had mercy on them. We move today to see that Paul is going to continue this and he's going to say, this is what's going to happen, guys. Because this has happened, even the Old Testament prophets speak to this same thing. Now remember that Paul is speaking both to Jews and Gentiles when he is writing the book of Romans. He's writing this book, of this chapter, chapter 9, letting people know, letting his readers know that the word of God has not failed. But we come to this point, and what we see from the patience and the power of God, we see that prophecy has been revealed. Paul reveals the prophecy from Hosea and Isaiah, and he's saying... It is 
fulfilled. Look at verse 25. He says, those, Hosea says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So when you look at this passage, you must first look at Hosea as you're reading this passage to understand it. Now, I want to teach you something just about Bible study, please. Is one of the things, we keep it in context, you know that. You know I've hammered that home to you for the last six years. Keep everything in context. But when you come to passages like this, it is the habit, not of just some, but of a lot of people who see that the writings of Paul, the writings of Jesus, the writings of John, and the gospel writers, they will refer back to the Old Testament, and it's real easy for us to just go, okay, that's great, you know, just to pass right by it. We don't go back and read it. And if you went back and read it, you would get a more fuller design of what Paul is trying to speak of because, remember, we let the New Testament interpret the Old, not the other way around. That's what happens uh, we get out of kilter, especially when it comes to prophecy, when it, especially when it comes to eschatology, because we let the Old Testament try to interpret the New Testament, and it should be the New Testament interpreting the Old. This is what Paul is doing. So we go back to Hosea, and we look at what he has said. And if you remember Hosea, first chapter says this, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I will put to end an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter and said, the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. What is he saying? In a nutshell, Paul is describing the prophecy has been fulfilled in this coming of Jesus and by salvation to the Gentiles. The Jewish people had missed the significance of the coming of the Messiah. In chapter 2, the prophet of Hosea, the prophet describes a group of people who would become God's people. He goes outside of that covenant and brings in a new people. And so by the rejection of God as their true husband, God extends mercy to those who are outside of Israel. Here we see mercy extended not only to a remnant, which we're going to learn in just a moment, but for the Gentiles. This is a privilege, dear friends, of mercy. It's a privilege of love that 
Gentiles formerly had no claim on. They didn't have a claim to that. They couldn't say, God owes us this. They were not his people. But now he's saying, I am going to call a people who were not my people, my people. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, the Gentiles, which include you and me, receive mercy. And as a result, we become the children of God. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is the inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. That is who God is. That's totally in line with God's character. Psalm 136.1 says, His mercy endures forever. He goes on to say in other places, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. You remember that little song that we used to sing? I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. Uh, I will sing. We used to sing it a lot. Lamentations tells us that his mercies are what? New every morning. It's a mercy of God that goes out to everyone. That's a general mercy, but there is that specific mercy for those in Christ Jesus. God never ceases to be merciful, but understand this, his mercy is regulated according to his sovereign will. According to his sovereign will. He is never obliged to give it out. Never. He will have mercy, as we understood in chapter 9, on whom he will have mercy. We cannot work for it. We don't merit it. In fact, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's because of his mercy. Mercy springs forth from God's good pleasure. Folks, what we need to understand as we're looking at the scripture, this is about God. We get thrown in there. We get to receive his mercy. We get to receive his grace. We get to receive his kindness and his love. But the scriptures are all about God. And we should have that as our focus. It's about God. We don't come to the scriptures to talk about what we can get out of it for us men and women and boys and girls and how we can be, quote, unquote, better people and have our best life now. This is all about God. And that's where we should keep the emphasis. This is about God and his mercy. It springs forth from God's good pleasure. Now, I want you to think about this. Beforehand, we just talked about how he had prepared vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction. Even the punishment of the wicked is an act of mercy. You say, Brother Andy, come on now, that's an act of justice. Yes, but it's also an act of mercy towards us as well. From the standpoint of the saved, it's what A.W. Pink calls an act of unspeakable mercy because he goes on to say, how dreadful would it be if the present order of things should continue forever when the children of God are obliged to live in the midst of the children of the devil. Heaven would at once cease to be heaven 
if the ears of the saints still heard the blasphemous, filthy language of the reprobate. So we see that when we go to heaven, it's an act of mercy towards us that we don't have to put up with any more sin, not only in ourselves, but from the world around us. We don't have to hear the blasphemous calls and the filthy language and the filthy thinkings of the mind from fallen men. That is an act of mercy. So God comes and God calls a people to himself that now become the true Israel. This is the fulfillment that is realized at Pentecost. When you go to the book of Acts chapter 2, you understand what's going on. The Spirit of God is poured out and it says it reached into the Gentiles. People spoke in different languages and God saved them. Now think about this personally. When God, the Spirit of God broke through your hard heart, you were a recipient not only of grace, but a recipient of God's mercy. That which we should be thankful for. But second, Paul recites Isaiah. And let's look at that just real quickly. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1 if you don't mind. Or swipe it on your electronic device to the book of Isaiah. And this is what he is citing. This is what he is doing. He recites that. I want you to notice some of the things that he says previously before he quotes this verse. He's, this is what Isaiah says. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Well, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And listen to what Paul says. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What was Paul saying? What was happening here? Israel, the Jewish people, continually rebelled against God. And what he was saying is that because the Gentiles have heard, they have become the people of God as well. He cries out, and Paul says in verse 27, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And he goes on to quote exactly what we just read. We understand and we know that there is going to be a remnant. 
Paul knew that the promise of God to Abraham would be that he would multiply his descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. So the question needs to be asked then, how many is that? How many Jews have been born since Abraham? Millions upon millions, perhaps billions. You can't number them. But does that mean all of them will be saved? No. This is totally in line of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. You know it well. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So how does that speak to us? How does that say anything to us in this day and age? Well, it's another question we have to ask. How many church members were there after Pentecost, and how many are there today? Billions. Billions. Did they all make it? If the way is narrow to life. Here's a point I want to make. Being a church member does not save you. Most of us understand that. Being a church member does not save you. Just because you're baptized or you were sprinkled as a baby doesn't mean you're numbered among the redeemed. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? In your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we have to understand that we cannot seek assurance of our salvation in our pedigree or in our church membership. What you look to is a changed life. You look to a changed life. Look at your fruit, look at your love for Christ and His Word. By these, you know that you're a child of God, also that you love the brethren. But don't write off the church like so many people do. They're saying, well, see there, here it goes. I don't need the church to be able to be saved. I don't need to worship at the church because I can worship on the lake while I'm fishing and do all those other kinds of things. Understand something, folks. We have an invisible church and a visible church. The invisible church is that that is known to God. He knows who are the redeemed. But the visible church is the means of grace that God has ordained to foster our growth and our fellowship with him and with others. It's where the remnant of God's people are found. So we understand that there is going to be a remnant and they are going to be saved. So we see that we have this privilege of love. We have this privilege of mercy. But Paul moves on to state the the privilege of righteousness. He goes on to say, verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not 
be put to shame. Once again, rhetorical question coming from Paul. What shall we say? Yes is the answer to the next part. They did receive the privilege of righteousness. A righteousness that was given to them by God through Christ. It's not by birthright, but it's by privilege. Faith was given to the Gentiles. And understand it was a gift that God wrought to in their hearts. But to the Jews, to the Jews as a whole, it was not given. Why? He answers it. He said, because they did not take it by faith. They did not receive it by faith. Jesus became a stumbling stone to them. Even the Apostle John says this in the first chapter. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Did not receive him. That's not unlike today, folks. People are still doing that. You know that, don't you? I know you know that. People are still working for their salvation by doing good works. How many times, I, I can't tell you how many times I have witnessed to people. And when I have said, how do you know that you are going to go to heaven? And their response, even though they will give me a response, well, I go to church, I go do this and whatever. Good, if you were standing before God right now and he asked you why he should let you in, what would you say? You don't know how many people that's prefaced it with I go to church that have said because I've been good I've done good things so people are still trying to get to heaven by the way of works so if you trust in your works by being a good person it's the works that you must do for the rest of your life so that you can enter into heaven it's that which you live by is works, you are obligated to work until you die so that you can think or hope that you can make it. Pastor Alan Snap states it well in the following story. He says, I have a pastor friend who received a very generous offer from a family in their church. This family was going to Disney World, and they wanted to take my pastor friend and his family with them. In fact, they wanted to treat them to everything, hotel rooms, meals, tickets into the park, everything they could possibly need to enjoy this trip as much as the host family did. And as a sideline, you know, if anybody wants to take me and Brenda to Hawaii and want to do that same thing, you go right ahead, Okay. It said this, this guy offering this trip also told my friend that he had one condition and one condition only. If you pay for anything on this trip, you pay for everything. If you pay for anything on this trip, you pay for everything. In other words, try to pull out your wallet to pay for anything and you are going to owe everything. He insisted it was to be entirely his treat or none of it would be his treat. That had effect on keeping my friend's wallet in his pocket. He never tried to pay for a thing. So what's the application? Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay the debt we could never pay, to earn for us what we could never earn for ourselves. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares that Jesus' payment was accepted by the Father. As a result, everyone who places their complete trust and faith in Jesus Christ receives eternal life, a place in heaven, 
as a gift. And so when it comes to your salvation, it's important that we all keep our wallets in our pocket, that we place our complete confidence in Jesus' finished work on the cross. We must not attempt to add anything to the work of Christ lest we empty the cross of its power. If we attempt to earn your salvation to any degree, we are obligated to earn the rest. Basically, in other words, if you pay for anything, you pay for everything. Now understand, for by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast we don't work for it it's been worked for us through the merits of our lord jesus christ so now we move on to the chapter 10 we've moved away from chapter 9 and we're going into chapter 10 and we have some great truths there and let me just speak to one now this is what he says my brother's My heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. Where did we hear that before? Chapter 9, verses 1. This is what he says, chapter chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here again, in a great teaching fashion, he's reiterating what he said at the first, and he comes back and repeats it again, and he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's his longing. These are his fellow kinsmen. He wants them to be saved. That's what he desires. We could preach a hundred sermons just on this very topic. We should have that kind of same desires for our own family, for our own kinsmen, and really everyone who is not saved. Our hearts should break for the lostness of people. I, I, I confess to you, you ready? I confess to you, I'm not as burdened as Paul is. I am not. I will confess that. That is something that I ask the Lord constantly. Lord, give me a burden to when I see people. When I see people, I will share the gospel in some way. I pray for that burden. I know there is the gift in Ephesians. It talks about, you know, those that are given to the church that are evangelists. I praise God for those folks, but that's not my gifting at all. I would rather open up the word of God and teach to believers, but I still have a responsibility to share the gospel with people. Last night we ate dinner, Brenda and I ate dinner with some old friends, and when I talk to old friends, they're my age, and I've known this man's wife since she was 10, and him since he was 12. And in fact, we went to junior high together, this guy, we went to junior high together, He went to a different high school. We reconnected at college, and I introduced him to his current wife, who I've known since I was 10 years old. And the reasoning I did that is because my mother thought since I was age 16 that I was supposed to marry her. 
And every time I would either break up with a girlfriend, she would say, so you're going to start dating Elisa now? No, no, I'm not. We're friends. You need to marry her. You need to marry her. So all constantly. So when he comes to me and says, who is that girl? I went, come here. <laughs> you know. You know, and I introduced him to, they fell in love, they, you know, did whatever, uh, got married, have kids, wonderful relationship. I think they've been married, you know, maybe a year uh, longer than what we have. But last night, he reminded me that we should be burdened for loss because we were served by a guy with purple hair. Purple hair last night is really interesting. Dark eyebrows, purple hair. Uh, young man, it was just it was just interesting, you know, type thing. And as he was coming back and forth, really a nice, nice young man. And my friend John says to him, as he puts down the food, hey, his name was Lex. Lex, we're about to pray over this food. Is there anything that we can pray for you about? And I'm sitting back over there going, I probably should have been the one that said that. But he did. He said it. And of course, he said, you know, I'm pretty good right now, you know. And I can't remember what he finally asked us to pray about for him. But uh, we did. And fortunately, my wife carries a little track in her purse and she likes to hand those out everywhere she goes about are you a good person so when the tip came you know time to give the tip guess what came along with it with that I wasn't even thinking about that I was still thinking about my shrimp on the plate you know I'll confess to you that you know but I should be that way I should be as this and so should all of us be burdened because as we've told this before, we don't know who are the elect. We don't know. Paul says he is praying for them. He doesn't know either, but he knows a remnant's going to be saved. So he continues to preach the gospel to everyone. And that's what we have to understand. We have to continue to pray for the lost and for our relatives, for our friends. Folks, pray for the lost, that God would open their heart for your relatives. God would open their heart to believe the gospel. Plead for them in prayer. Do it on a regular basis. Because Paul says right here in this verse, listen to what he says, they have a zeal for God. Now, what is zeal? That means it's a great energy for a cause. But he says it's without knowledge, though, but not according to to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They seek to establish it. How? In their uh, own way, through the law. That's what he's saying. They were fanatical in those things. Perhaps you've met some fanatics in your life. You know what a fanatic is? According to Winston Churchill, a fat fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. You met those people? Can't change their mind and won't change the subject. R.C. Sproul says a fanatic is someone who loses sight of where they are going and redouble their efforts to get there. That's what they are. This is what he is saying about the Jews. They're zealous. They've redoubled their efforts. They're trying. But they cannot submit to the righteousness of God. 
Who is the righteousness of God? It's Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Christ fulfilled the law so that he would become our righteousness. The law was given, folks, to point us to Christ. Do not unhitch yourself from the Old Testament to understand that. There are churches still today that recite the Ten Commandments when they are gathered together in worship. Some people think, well, that's kind of silly. Why do we do that? It's because to remind us of the perfect righteousness of God because the law gives us this perfect righteousness and reminds us that we can never fulfill it. It had to be fulfilled for us, and it was fulfilled for us in Christ Jesus. The law points us to Christ. That's what Paul in Galatians says, The law is a tutor. It is a teacher to lead us to Christ. The law, when we read it and we see it, it shows us our blemishes, shows us our warts, shows us our leprosy. It exposes our sin so that we'll run to the Savior. And what Paul is saying, I am brokenhearted over my people because they have stumbled. They have missed the Messiah. We should be as well. When we look at those masses of humanity, when we look at our own families, we should be as well that they've missed the Messiah and we should pray for them and we should confess and say, Lord, give us a burden for the lost. That's what we're going to learn next week. We're going to learn how God does this. How does it go about? How does one get saved? How... What are the instruments that God uses? We delve into chapter 10 even further. We're going to be talking about preaching the word of God, sharing the word of God. That's the means by which God has ordained for people to come to know him. And so we will learn that next week, and hopefully we will see and begin to develop that burden that we need, that burden for prayer Uh, for the lost, the sharing of the gospel, and pray that they would not miss the Messiah as we share the gospel with everyone we meet. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that through this word we know, Lord, that you've included us as Gentiles, as your people. We thank you for that, Lord, that you've grafted us in. So, Father, we we give you praise and we give you glory and we give you honor for that. We ask, O Lord, that you would grant us a burden for our kinsmen. You'd grant us a burden for those that we love. That you'd grant us a burden for the world. And, Lord, that we would not try to pronounce judgment upon them, but, Lord, weep over them. That they're stumbling. That they're missing the Messiah. Lord, I confess to you my lack, my lack of burden for that, my lack of obedience for sharing the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would burden my heart. You would give me that desire to continue to share the word of God. Help me, O Lord. Help me in that. And help us as a congregation to be aware of the people around us. And Lord, to help us, whether it's just in a word, uttering a prayer, asking how we can pray for them, handing them a track, whatever it may be, 
Lord, help us to share the gospel everywhere we go. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.